imagine with me, it's your first day on the job, new job, you go to the cafeteria, it's a big lunchroom, and you walk in and there's two groups of people at two different tables, and you have to kind of choose where I'm going to sit. I don't know anyone here, uh, where am I going to choose between these two groups of people that look differently, but they're they're separated. I've got to go this place. Now, I know some of you are a bit shy, so you're like, I can't imagine that. I would be in my cubicle eating by myself. Others of you are like, I can't imagine it because I've already made eight friends, got three contact infos, made plans for the weekend. But imagine with me that that's not the case. You walk in new, what are you going to choose? And then I think if we would be honest, which I've, I, I'm hoping James is doing in us because James is so direct and practical and honest about life in this world and giving us wisdom for everyday life that he's going to expose our hearts. And so if you think about this, I think, honestly, most of us would choose the table that, that the people look most like us, that we're going to lean in most likely to a place where they look like this because this is going to be more comfortable to me. This is probably going to feel more safe to me. I'm going to be okay here, so I'm going to go to this table. Now, I said it's comfortable. I'm not going to rail on comfort, but I've done that for four years. <laughs> I'm not going to rail on comfort, but I, I am going to tell you there's a, there's a difference between enjoying a comfort to the glory of God and comfort being your God. Are you with me? You know what I'm saying? There's a difference there. Being able to enjoy a comfort to the glory of God, that you can actually say, I, I'm doing this in faith to the glory of God, to comfort has become the God of my heart, and I serve comfort in such a way that it dictates how I act, how I treat, how I uh, uh, live in this world, what table I choose. And James, is again, is going to be direct this morning and shine some light on our hearts, getting specific on how we interact with people, exposing what, what uh, I think the ESV reads, the partiality in our hearts, the favoritism in our hearts. And so look at James 2.1. And as we talked about last week with, with it being kind of a pop quiz, I don't think James is done with us. He's going he's gonna to ask us to evaluate our hearts, to evaluate what's going on here. So James 2.1, my brothers and sisters, do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. And then he gives an example. For if someone comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and a poor person dressed in filthy clothes also comes in. If you look with favor on the one wearing the fine clothes and say, sit here in a good place, and, and yet you say to the poor person, stand over there, sit here on the floor by my footstool. Haven't you made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So as I said, some of your Bibles might read partiality. This is reading in the CSB, favoritism. That word in the original language literally means to receive a face, which is to prefer a person over another person based upon their appearance, whether their looks, their clothes, their style, the color of their skin. 
That's what he's saying. That we receive a face, that we prefer this person based upon their appearances uh, over this person based on their appearances. And as he illustrates this, I mean, it's gross, right? Do you feel this with me? I, I think about our church. I, I don't want to read this as, as, as some uh, example that's hypothetical or history that is like, oh, this is, yeah, that's just them. Like, I think about what, what, what if that was it? What if, what if that was us? What if someone came in and we're like, yeah, I mean, uh, can you just, shh, actually, can you be a little bit quiet? Uh, uh, you got kind of an odor. Can you, like, move over here? Can you get away from everyone? Or, or just escalate it. Like, you, can you go out into the fellowship hall? It's live streaming out there. You can be out there by yourself. But we are going to be in here. And then, you know, some local television celebrity or news reporter shows up or like, yes, hey man, what's up? It's so good to see you. Come on in. I'm so glad you're here. This validates our faith because there's actually a famous person that believes in Jesus. This makes us feel good about ourselves. So come in and sit here. We love you. We judge people based on their appearance. And the problem is not their appearance, but our evil thoughts. Do you hear me? This is James. The problem is not their appearance in this scenario. The problem is not what they look like. The problem is not how they're dressed. The problem is not how they smell. The problem is with our hearts, our evil thoughts. We favor the wealthy and look down on the poor. The wealthy can sit up front, but the poor can sit on the ground in the back. The, the wealthy can get a big welcome. The poor get the side-eye glances. We've made distinctions and judged with evil thoughts. And the implication here is that this is not relegated to money. Clearly, his illustration is money. You'll see, because of their context, that they were, uh, the Christians that he's writing to are poor themselves. But, but this is something that's happening in their congregations. But the implication, this is not relegated to wealth. This is any way that we prefer one person over another because of their appearance, their style, their age, their gender, their ethnicity. Tempted to worship the God of comfort, not the God of comfort, comfort as our God we're often tempted to prefer people who look like us. We're tempted to prefer people we can benefit from. You know what the poor can do for us? Help us much. You know what the wealthy can get us? Maybe we get to visit their house out in the woods. Maybe we get to join on their summer vacation. We're tempted to prefer people, prefer, prefer people we can benefit from. We're often tempted to prefer people who are comfortable, similar to us, who don't stretch us. Now, we may have trained our church. We may have trained our greeters to not do this, right? 
So maybe the action's not there, but, but really this isn't a purely behavioral problem. This is an attitude problem. This is a worship problem. This is a theology problem. Just because the action, just because we don't do this actively doesn't mean our hearts are pure. It doesn't mean that. We may have altered the behavior, but not our theology or our attitude. So we can say, hey, we don't do that here. So like this text doesn't apply to us. Let's move on. Why are we spending a whole, a whole morning on these seven verses? Well, because favoritism is in our hearts because it is rooted in selfish, self-centered arrogance. How we act towards someone is based on how we perceive their worth to us. How we maybe not externally put them over here and sit them on the floor, but how we judge them in our hearts is based on, do they look like me? Can I benefit from them? Is this going to be purely comfortable for me? Or is this actually going to be some tension or difficult for me? Do you hear that? That's self-centered arrogance. And as it goes further, this, this means we have a problem with our doctrine. Something that's altered in our doctrine of humanity. Because the Bible clearly puts forth that every human being is made in the image of God and therefore has inherent dignity, value, and worth. They're made in the image of God, stamped with the image of God. But favoritism gives dignity based on appearance. The doctrine, or let's say it, true religion, as James says, it sees dignity based on God's image in that person, not based on their appearance. And so this is a major problem. I mean, since the fall, since our first parents, Adam and Eve, turned their back on God, said they were better than God, they knew better than God, they were wiser than God, this has been a problem throughout human history where people have divided over appearance, even hated other groups of people. So James addresses this not because it's merely a problem around us or in the world, but in us. He clearly is saying, brothers and sisters, when you're gathering, it's not, it doesn't, it doesn't take a seminary degree, no offense, Taylor, to understand that he's talking to a church that's gathering on a Sunday. And he's saying, I'm not, I'm not rallying against the people in the square doing this. I'm saying it's happening in us. This is happening here. This is our hearts. It's not only a problem in the world, it's a problem in the church earliest example we see this in Christian history, in church history, is Acts 6. Acts 6. You know what's happening there? The Hellenistic widows are being overlooked in the distribution of food. So in this day, there's widows that don't have the ability to get help from external organizations or the state. 
So they're left to, to bank on their family. And if they don't have their husband or their kids, they're in the church, and the church is there to provide for them, to care for them. And what has happened? The people who are distributing the food are taking it to the Hebraic widows, not to the Hellenistic widows. Just skipping over them. Like making all the food, getting it all together, delivering it to this group, not to this group. Based on their appearance. It's just like the person here in James who ushers in the wealthy person but makes the poor person sit on the floor. But but this isn't just the first century, right? Again, can we keep this at a distance and say this is in the past? There's none of us that deal with this. We can't. Because you can fast forward 1,700 years and see this in America. Richard Allen, who was born a slave in Philadelphia, Jesus saves him when he's a teenager by him hearing a circuit-riding Methodist preacher, which means he's riding the horse around preaching the gospel. Richard Allen becomes uh, a Christian. He then turns around and becomes a pastor, a preacher himself. Uh, he starts ministering at this church, St. George's Methodist Church in Philadelphia. Uh, at the time, I think in 1786, there's four other African members, uh, church members in this church. Uh, within a year, it's gone to 42 because of his ministering, because of his preaching, because of his relationship with the community. He's evangelizing. People come to faith. People are coming into the, the church and at this time, it's in the north, it's in Philly, uh, it's a biracial church. You know, there's, there's white and black people all together. Think back to this meeting that James is talking about, right? We're all together, in this together. The church continues to grow, and because of pressure, many factors, in 1792, so just five years later, the white church leadership cast all the African-American congregants to the balcony. You can no longer sit with us. You got to sit up there with, by yourselves. Why? James 2.1. That's why. This is who James writing to, to us. That we are tempted to play favorites and to prefer people based on their appearance to relegate people to certain parts, to, to judge them in our hearts, to flee from them because they don't look like us, to run from them because it may be difficult to enter into their lives and to engage with them. And what eventually happens is that splits. So this beautiful church, I, I, I can't even imagine this, this beautiful church, this tapestry, of God's people, which is reflecting what eternity will look like, all nations and tribes and tongues around the throne of God, then gets segregated. These people pushed here. These people can sit here. And then the African-American church is like, we're not going to take this anymore. They walk out, and they start their own church. And so what was this beautifully united church is now two separate, segregated institutions because of favoritism. Favoritism is a divisive, harmful evil. 
James says, do you see that phrase? Do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. What he's saying is faith and favoritism are incompatible. They don't go hand in hand. These don't work together. This is like chalk and cheese. No, no one gets that one. Me neither. Me neither. Me neither. <laughs> Just incompatible. On Match.com, chalk and cheese aren't going to get together. It's not going to happen. But neither are faith and favoritism. Favoritism, knowing that, knowing that years after many years after the Bible is written, then someone put in the chapter divisions and the verses. We shouldn't jump to chapter 2 not recalling where we've just been. And what he's done is just talk about true religion. And favoritism violates all three elements of true religion that James lined out in the previous section. Why? True religion helps the poor. Favoritism dishonors them and insults them. True religion is unstained from the world, but favoritism is stained by the world because it continues the world's inclination to prefer certain kinds of people over these people based on their appearance. True religion controls the tongue, but favoritism snubs, speaks ill of, looks down on, goffs us about, slanders, demeans the poor. Playing favorites with God's people is like playing favorites with your children. It's going to mess them up and wreck most of your relationships. I mean, you, you, can, you can prefer one food over another. Go for it. You can prefer one car over another. Go for it. Why? Because they're objects. People aren't objects. There aren't objects for you to objectify and demean and push down the image of God in them and say, ah, they don't really have value unless they look like me or they act like me or if they're in the same economical bracket as me. No. People poorer than you aren't objects because they make a little bit less money than you. They're not. People from a different ethnicity don't inherently have something broken in them because they're less than you, because you're superior, because you're better, because you're part of this, because I grew up in this, and everyone I grew up with looked like me. No, false. You're basing your connection with them, your engagement with them on their appearance rather than who God has created them to be, an image bearer of him with inherited, inherent dignity, value, and worth. We are judges with evil thoughts when we base someone's worth upon their worth. Do you know what I mean? When we base their worth on how much they make. We base their worth on what job they have. We base their worth on where they live. We base their worth in, in how they come to us in need. Their worth is not connected to your assessment at all. Your assessment means nothing. Nothing. What James clearly tells us, which maybe it's not clear because some of our English translations struggle with it, but in the original language, it actually says, faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, comma, 
the glory. What he's saying, because James is immersed in the Old Testament. And where do you see the glory of God in the Old Testament? Clearly, Exodus 33, right? Moses saying, show me your glory. And what does God do? He passes by Moses and says, the Lord, the Lord, a God gracious and merciful, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity. He reveals his goodness and greatness to Moses. And what James is saying is that the Lord Jesus Christ is the glory of God visibly, tangibly seen. Which means he's the judge, not you. He's the assessor, not you. He's the giver of worth and dignity value, not you. That he's the glorious one who became poor so that his people might become rich. And so in the face of Jesus, you see the goodness and greatness of God on display. And that says, no, no, I I can't do this. I can't play favorites. Because I'm not him. I'm not supreme. I don't reign as the Lord of glory. I don't get to make that call. I don't get to assess that person's worth. Their worth is objective, not subjectively based on your assessment. Their worth is objectively secure in the, the, the aspect that they bear the image of God. Favoritism uses people to get what we love, but true religion loves people to serve them. When you use someone, when you when you meet someone new and all you see in them is, is how you can benefit from them, you're seeing them as an object, not as a leave, living, breathing, embodied soul reflecting the image of God. Maybe a step deeper is that in this assessment of wealth or whatever is your flavor what you're really doing is looking for glory in people and James is saying no the glory is Jesus you're looking for people so that you can connect to that's why I made the joke earlier I I see so many that's a hyperbolic overstatement I see some people that get really excited when a celebrity comes to faith, because they're like, yeah, we got a cool person, a part of our team now. That validates us. I'm like, what? This is strange. Like, we need someone who can write a pop song to uh, validate us when Jesus is the Lord of glory. (laughs) But we're looking for glory somewhere. And if we're not enamored captivated by the glory of Jesus, then we're going to put it on someone else. And, and if they fit our mold, we're going to idolize them or demonize them. If you're going to put the glory that God has put in you for you to, to reflect back to him on a person, it's going to go off. To idolizing them, putting the weight on, of, of being a God to you on their shoulders or demonizing them because they don't 
look like you or help you in the way that you want them to. So big picture from this is James states, favoritism and faith are just incompatible. This can't be how we act. This also can't be our heart, our attitude. And then he, he just argues against their thinking as well. So I told you last week that if you look at our hearts, it, it's, it has a cognitive, volitional, and affective emphasis. We can't, we can't reduce our heart just to thinking. We can't reduce our heart just to affection. We can't reduce our heart just to our choices, our will. We have to see it as all. And so he's going after hearts. He's going after affections. He, he's going after our actions. And now he's also going to argue with their logic. James 2, verse 5. Their logic to prefer the rich over the poor Verse 5, listen, my dear brothers and sisters, didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he promised to those who love him? Yet you have dishonored the poor. Don't the rich oppress you and drag you into court? Don't they blaspheme the good name that was evoked over you? Indeed, if you fulfill, look at verse 8. Indeed, if you fulfill the royal law prescribed in the scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. If, however, you show favoritism, you commit sin, are convicted by the law as transgressors. God has chosen the weak and the poor to shame the powerful and sufficient. Many of the early Christians were poor, but Jesus became poor to make them rich, making them Heirs of the kingdom of God, gifted with all the spiritual blessings in the heavens. God has rescued the poor. We dishonor them. The rich oppress the Christians, but we prefer them. The rich blaspheme the name of Jesus but we want to be on their team. James, in this argument, is saying, don't you see the contradiction? Don't you see this contradiction? You're guilty of playing favorites. This doesn't make sense. You want to welcome that wealthy man into your church, but isn't he the, the same person that wants to blaspheme the name of Jesus and drag you into court? What's going on here? This doesn't even make sense logically. You're guilty of playing favorites. We are guilty of playing favorites. This, this humbles us. Because last week, he kind of set up where he's going to go over the rest of his book. He's going to talk about the tongue more in chapter 3. He's going to talk more about being unstained from the world in chapter 4 and 5. And essentially what he's going to say in all these categories is, you are guilty. Not to condemn brothers and sisters. Not to condemn you. But to convict you. To expose your heart. And lead you to repentance to turn and see the glory of Jesus. He's going to say, we're guilty of not controlling our tongues. We're guilty of being stained by the world, which all leads to chapter 4 and 4-6 when he says, God 
opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, verse 10, humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. Favoritism is selfish arrogance, but true religion is humility before our God, becoming more and more and more like him. Humility molds us more into the image of Jesus, more into God our Father who looks on the heart. 1 Samuel 16, when, when they're trying to consider who's the king, God tells it tells them what man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. So preference based on appearance isn't godly, rather it's worldly and demonic. The, the enemy, the evil one, Satan, loves prejudice and racism and division, and arrogance. But our God, Father, Son, and Spirit is one, united, gracious, compassionate, and loves humility. Loves humility. So again, the the wisdom for everyday life is be like God our Father, not the devil, the father of lies. I told you last week, there's, there's so much in wisdom that is choosing the fork in the road in the moment. Am I going to go this route or this route? And James is pushing us to this fork this morning of, you, you've got this. In regards to how you engage with people that look different than you, you can follow in the footsteps of your father, God, or the father of lies, this is what you have. There's not seven other options. To be very frank, that's before you. That's what you have. We see this in 1 Samuel 16, that God looks on the heart. But we also see this in what Jesus just quoted, the royal law. This is Jesus' most often Old Testament verse that he quotes. It's Leviticus 19.18 that says, love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. And in Mark 12, he summarizes all of the law using Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19 by saying, All of it can be summarized by this, love God and love others. It all hangs on this. So that makes sense why why James would put this favoritism, which many of us walked into this thinking, thinking it's not that big of a deal. It's not that big of a problem for us. I mean, look, can we, should we, shouldn't we talk about the sexual sin and the greed and all this stuff that's very prevalent and I, like in front of us? Favoritism, really? And James says, yes, favoritism, really, because favoritism is unloving. It's selfish, self-centered, arrogant. But King Jesus is loving. Why does, this, this is where James 
kind of shines some light. It, you, you need to know a little bit uh, about the scriptures, but why does he call it the royal law? It's not called the royal law in Leviticus 19. He calls it the royal law because it's the law of the King Jesus, and King Jesus is loving and welcoming. His law reflects his nature, and his nature is loving and welcoming. And so we love others like Jesus. I mean, think about Jesus as, or Jesus on earth. Like, how did he interact? He moved towards the poor and marginalized. He kept walking towards the leper. He put himself in places where the marginalized, the oppressed, the needy were in his sphere. He would like go towards them and minister them and love them and welcome them. This is the heart of Jesus, gentle and lowly, humbly moving towards people that don't look like him to serve them and bless them and help them and engage them and care for them. Loving others like Jesus, then, is accepting them like Jesus would. I mean, our, our example from James is that they come into our midst, but there's so many other ways. That the person you run to on Chapin Road, the other people in your class, your school, your neighbors, your co-workers. I mean, back to James, the very other members of this church. Loving others like, is accepting them like Jesus would. Loving others is evaluating people like Jesus would. Loving others is acting towards people like Jesus would. And so we, we see the glory of God in the person and work of Jesus, and it changes us and roots out that favoritism in our hearts, changes our thinking, and, and in his love for us overpowers the hatred, the division, the prejudice in our hearts so that we move towards other people in love, not based on their appearance, but based on the appearance of the glory of God. Do you know what I'm saying? Jesus. Not treating them based on how they look, but treating them based on that Jesus has come to earth and revealed who the Father is beautifully. That's what determines, dictates how we interact, engage with other people, particularly people that look different than us. I mean, it, Jesus himself was poor and homeless. Jesus himself looked different than most of us. I mean, it, to stick with James and his illustration, if Jesus walked in here in modern clothes, but being these things still, how would you engage with them? Would we honestly prefer someone over than him? If we didn't know who he was, if he didn't say anything, 
But thank God that isn't the gospel. (laughs) The gospel isn't God treats us based on how we've treated other people. The gospel is Jesus moves toward us in love, empties himself of his attributes, comes to earth, becomes poor, moves towards the marginalized, moves toward the sick, moves towards the sinning sufferers and the suffering sinners to rescue them and to welcome them to, to his father's family. Embracing them, pulling them in, pursuing them. Jesus, thank God, Jesus has not treated you like you've treated people that look different than you. He's pursued you and came after you. Gave his life for you out of his love for you. Becomes poor so that you can be rich. Man, I can't promise financial wealth. That, that's not what Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians. But spiritual wealth now and forever. All the spiritual blessings in the heavens are yours because Jesus didn't treat you like you treat others. He treated you out of his nature, loving, gracious, not selfish and arrogant, but humble and compassionate. So the the pressure you have, the action you have, the quiz you have is, yes, my actions, because I can say as a church, I don't... I don't think we have greeters that, that do what James is saying here, but I can't speak to our motives. I can't speak to our hearts. I can't speak to what's going on inside of us. But you have to do this individually as well to assess how, how do I act? How do I behave towards those that look different from that, me, that how I judge them based on their appearance? And not only how I act, but how do I judge in my heart? How do I view them? How do I assess them? And as I think James most likely is going to convict us that we all play favorites in some some way or the other, it's his kindness to do so. It's a kind of father that gently exposes and corrects you so you don't continue down that path. It's a kind father that would show, no, your thinking is wrong. You're basing others' people worth on what you think is worthy, not of on what I have done to them. I've made them in my image, and I have recreated them in the image of Jesus by saving them. And so then it, I think, leads to Repentance joyful repentance to turn to the glory of Jesus and to see him for who he is and how he has loved us and then that love control us, compel us to love others that look different than us. May it be so by the Spirit's power. Father, we pray this, ask this 
ask you to work in us, to work in our hearts, to change our hearts, to root out the, the evil thoughts, the evil judgments, the evil assessments in our heart, the prejudice, the racism. God, would you, would you expose that in us? Would you expose what is in our heart so that you would lead us to, to repent, to turn from it, to believe the gospel again, to see the good news of Jesus again? And then to move in love towards others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.